Picture the scene. Just before sunrise, a patch of black ice. The car spins, skids, flips. All you hear is the groan of twisting metal and the twinkle of safety glass. And you're upside down. You hear a trickling liquid and pray that it is sudden rainfall and not a punctured gasoline tank. The seatbelt is locked up, but even if you press the button, you'd still be immobile as your legs are pinned beneath the steering column. Through the splintered windshield, you see that the car, which you only had three payments left on, is positioned squarely between two steel tracks disappearing into the darkness of early morning. With your one free arm, you reach out for your partner and feel immediate terror when your hand caresses an empty seat, still warm from their body. You wrench around, wincing from countless injuries, searching for them. Were they thrown out of the car? Were they wearing a seatbelt? They'd always been the overly cautious sort, but maybe this one time they forgot. Are they alive? But then something catches your eye, a single light growing larger and brighter as you feel the heft and chug of the engine behind that lamp vibrating down the rails and into the mangled car frame. And you barely hear the deafening roar of the train's horn because that burning light illuminates the most horrifying sight yet. That partner of yours, the one you'd shared so much with, laughs and holiday celebrations and warm beds, is running away. On the last episode, I talked a bit about the fear of not trusting oneself in times of crisis. The notion that we can't know just how we will act until that time comes. But what about those you love? Those you depend on? Those that you trust? I want to believe that my partner wouldn't leave me in an immobilized heap waiting for a speeding train. I'm sure you all want to believe your loved ones wouldn't either. But how can we truly know until we find ourselves on those tracks, upside down? Ladies and gentlemen, the doctor is in, and the haunt is on. Chapter 15. First, static. Then the muffled thump-thump of a single finger on the microphone. Everyone from Table 9, and surely many others that had boarded the Baroness five days before, had learned to wince at the first crackle of the ship's intercom coming to life. While the smug, slightly nasal voice that clawed out of Donnie Fredericks was, at first, irritating, alarming, Anything that followed the summons to his magic show could only mean a further deepening of madness. His subsequent announcement was no different. Howdy, friends. It's your assistant... Sorry. Old habits, I guess. We get so used to taking a back seat, don't we? To being second or third, never in control. There was a cheeriness to his voice, as if he were running down the list of offshore excursions that day, where and when to meet the staff members and what they should bring. He continued, now that we've taken care of some business, what does that make me now? He asked this rhetorically, or maybe to the others in the room where he was broadcasting from. But really, do titles even matter any longer? We're approaching an age where all of those human constructs, those little squabbles between jealous lovers, will be wiped away. Those petty resentments, Janet, you know, from accounting, she ate the last yogurt, or, oh no, my bento box. 
even though I clearly put my name on it. That, too, will be nothing but a whisper of the past, of the brief time where we thought we were in control. That's all coming to an end. Outside of his echoing voice, the hallways and staterooms of the Baroness, the engine room and kitchens, were silent. Anyway, enough with all my vague rambling. If you need to think of me as anything, consider me his servant. I wish I could apologize for that unpleasantness earlier today, and for what's coming next, but I won't. This honestly pales in comparison to what he will bring to the earth. When he rises from his watery grave, wait, for no, what am I saying? It's not a grave. It's more of a, a resting place. No, even that implies some sort of death. But something like him, ancient and everlasting, that is not dead, which can eternal lie. Let's say um, he's been waiting. The monologue was being delivered with the surety of a man with a microphone and unchecked power. His voice was the tangible convergence of glee and anticipation. Donnie sounded like he could barely contain himself. You have no idea how much it pleases me to know that this voyage, this very ship, and all the souls aboard it, have been chosen to end his slumber. And with that, we come to the point of this conversation. He said this as if it were two-sided. I know I have the tendency to go off on tangents, it's like I just enjoy hearing myself talk, don't I? Again, he was speaking to others in the room, not to the scattered passengers hiding throughout the ship. Well, folks, it's time to wake him up, to show our loyalty, our commitment, and then unleash him on this pathetic excuse for humanity. Our time is over. Most of us, anyway. All those wars we've waged, those movies we've made and books written, families raised and faiths followed... All will be forgotten when the slate is wiped. He will reset time. And life, well, life can begin again. I know, I know. World destruction, global annihilation. These concepts are extreme. The human mind simply can't process extinction. The notion that they, that all, will not continue. But again, this isn't anything new. We've heard it before. The earth has been stripped clean many times. We've blamed it on comets or shifting tectonic plates. Or, if you were attentive in Sunday school, on the ever-benevolent God covering the earth with water. But imagine, if you will, that God, the one you've been praying to, isn't waiting for us in heaven, somewhere up in the clouds, but actually at the bottom of the ocean, in a hell without fire. Donnie paused here, as if allowing whoever hadn't tuned him out to let this information sink fully in. This, of course, was a moment he'd been waiting for. The chance to deliver revelation. But enough of this brimstone and tentacle talk. Are you all ready to hear the good news? The man had an air of a door-to-door salesman, of a headstrong disciple. You all have the chance to be spared from this viciousness. Saved from the chaos and the horror he will churn up from below the waves. This vessel... The Baroness is the new Ark, a princess for his dominion, an oasis from his wrath. Huh, wow, I just realized, since we were talking about titles, and I'm kind of leading this whole thing, maybe, maybe you should call me Noah. No, I could never pull off that beard. 
But all you have to do is figure out what or who you are going to sacrifice for him. Earlier today, I told you you needed to choose the captain's path or ours. Well, that decision's coming now. We're going to give you a few hours to process, but you're going to have to settle on what you love most. Your husband or girlfriend, that secret lover. Maybe you'd think of yourself first. We do live in a world of self-absorption. Who knows? One thing, though. Uh, you know, you guys know that this is an adults-only itinerary, and that was serendipitous. Most of you, with those little rats running around, you obviously love your children most. And come on, we would never ask you to kill your kids, would we? We aren't monsters. Again, Donnie Fredericks paused. Another pregnant theatricality. But hey, we're chugging along here. We should be there by sunrise. The dawn of a new era unfurling like his wings. So you have a bit of time to make your decision. But I'd suggest you make it quick, because if you don't, we will be forced to make the choice for you. As soon as Donnie finished his speech, Chad threw out his plan. Two words. Lifeboats. That's our way out. There was some back and forth, especially from Austin, who kept insisting they stay put and wait for help to arrive. But eventually the four people hiding behind the arcade prize counter began moving. It was after Marie suggested she would leave without him that Austin reluctantly agreed. Teresa kept to herself, knowing that her husband's plan was, if not a great one, the only one, and she studied the younger couple while she took the rear of the pack. They shared similarities, the couples, like hailing from the state of Wisconsin, number of children, general views on life. They could be a version of Chad and herself 20 years prior, but Teresa knew there was more beneath the surface of Austin and Marie. Resentment in him, longing in her. And while Teresa was usually the sort to butt into others' issues, however intimate they might be, she knew this wasn't the time. They had to get away from these terrorists or cult members or whatever they were, and once they were on dry land again, away from the insanity, maybe then she could try to work her magic. They snuck their way to the starboard side of the ship, following Chad and his hand signals. Soon, Teresa was back on the same deck where they'd been educated about not only safety and evacuation procedures, but about the morbid history of the ship. She'd felt uncomfortable then, but it paled in comparison to what she was feeling now. The only light, little beacons, was coming from emergency lanterns that were mounted to the ship's hull every ten feet. Beyond the railing, the rain was coming hard and fast, and night had fallen. And at first, no one spoke, as if they were taking in the enormity of the blackness that was swallowing the ship, and how well and truly alone they really were. Teresa did her best not to focus on that sort of desperation, and instead fixed her attention on the group. Marie was stone-faced, focused on the row of lifeboats, hanging like massive ornaments or body jewelry from the edge of the ship. Her husband, Austin, was twitchy. His expression twisted into a grimace, and he was constantly looking over his shoulder. Chad had gone to the nearest boat, and after a big of tugging, opened the rear hatch. He peered inside, then rejoined the group. He was placid, his features soft. The man was in his element, and his voice matched his demeanor. That, ladies and gentlemen is a free-fall lifeboat. Austin scoffed. What the hell does that mean? It means we are in luck, Chad said. I don't know much about life on the high seas, but from what I got in our safety meeting, 
some lifeboats need a crew to load up the pod and then hoist it out over the water on cables before they let it free and it drops down. That basically ensures that the crew of the ship has to be involved. Right now, I think our crew might be less than inclined to give us a hand. These babies, however, are detached from inside the craft. Just pull the lever. Well, what are we waiting for? Austin asked. He started toward the lifeboat. Chad caught him by the arm. Not so fast. We need to do a few things first. We aren't sinking, so we've got the time. Not much, with those things around. When Chad motioned toward the camera mounted in the corner, Teresa felt her breath catch, and Austin slammed his body against the wall as if trying to blend in. Relax, Chad said. They've got them all over the ship. Then why aren't they here now? Marie asked. Why didn't they come to the arcade? I figure either they have their hands full with other passengers, or they don't have enough folks watching the monitors. Then why were we sneaking around like some sort of ninjas? Austin asked. Why bring any more attention to ourselves? Chad said. Most likely, they just don't care that much. There are only so many places we can go on this ship, and they know they can get us eventually. Okay, so what do we need to do, honey? Teresa asked. Food. We're going to need enough to last a while. Marie, Austin, check the dining room. It should be just through those doors. He pointed at the other end of the deck. I need you to get enough food for, I don't know, a week? Ten days? Look for energy bars. Stuff like that. Less weight, but more protein. Get me? Oh, and of course, water. Do it fast. Marie nodded and was already turning, but her husband was still. Wait, why us? What do you mean? Chad asked. Why don't you go? You've got the big time training, don't you? I need to get the lifeboat ready. See all those ropes and cables? Normally the crew would be prepping it, but now I... You know what? I don't want to argue with you again, Austin. Please just go. Austin made to say something, but Marie took his arm. Chad added, Oh, and as unpleasant as this might be, there aren't toilets on that thing, so we're going to need a bucket or something. The younger couple disappeared through the double doors, and Chad and Teresa began unhooking latches and untying straps. The rain was coming down harder now, the steady pop and smack of the countless drops sounding like the static of the dead intercom. For the briefest moment, even though the scene was vastly different, Teresa felt deja vu. She was transported to the small, shimmering lake in South Carolina, helping Chad to do the same with the little double pontoon boat they'd rent from the HOA. Boy, it's times like these that I am glad that I hitched up to your wagon. Chad, using the light of his cell phone to work his hand down and under the lifeboat, said, Yeah, I'm a little worried about that guy too. Austin? I've known guys like that. When their lives are on the line, they just come apart. He was able to free the knot and let the rope uncoil and pool on the floor between his shoes. And you know what? God didn't put me here to judge anyone else, to tell them how brave they should be or what decisions they should make. But a man like Austin is a grenade. A paperweight until the pin is pulled. When the intercom cut out, the only sound was the heavy rain pattering the waves and the soft whistle of wind through the sliding glass door. The blessed crispness of the ocean breeze was combating the scent of raw construction materials and stale air inside the barren stateroom. Carolyn could feel her own heartbeat. The rhythm pulsed in her ears. 
She could feel Greg's hand, clammy and rigid in her own. The carpetless floor was hard beneath her, and the half-light of the ship's running lights coming through the balcony doors was almost worse than full dark. The faint glow made the many shadows of the room, the dark corners, feel alive. After leaving the mini-golf course, they'd snuck around, staying out of sight, listening to the low volume of the radio for moments when the coast was clear, and got to the one area of the ship where the couple thought they'd be safe until the cavalry arrived, the two closed-off levels of staterooms. The floors where the terror of the maiden voyage had been ingrained enough that the rooms were stripped down to fiberglass and steel. Though, now, on the second voyage, like any good sequel, it was shaping up to outdo the first. The pair sat, huddled close in the center of the once lavish space, the radio in Greg's hand, pistol in Carolyn's. Their free hands gripped one another. What in the actual fuck? Greg whispered. This can't be real. Can we just wake up now? Carolyn's mind was swirling, landing on various words or phrases that Donnie had uttered, then moving to the next. She began whispering, repeating, That is not dead. That is not dead. Though she couldn't see his face well enough, Carolyn knew Greg was searching hers, or trying to. That is not dead. Carolyn, he said. What? What are you saying? That is not dead. That is not dead. Okay, now you're freaking me out. Greg let go of her hand. She could hear him slide backward. Which can eternal lie? Carolyn said, forgetting to whisper. It clicked. And then she was whispering again. I've read this before. Okay. I'd like to think I'm a level-headed guy, and I can be patient. But you're going to have to talk to me more than those same words. Let me know you aren't boarding the crazy bus. No, I, I mean, I've read this before, literally. Still concerned, Greg said. Sorry, sorry. Sometimes when I think I'm talking, I'm really just having a conversation in my own head. That's from a Lovecraft story. Greg asked, the horror writer? Yeah, there's been a run on his work lately, past couple of years. Everyone's coming in and asking about him. We can't seem to keep any of his books on the shelves. Oh yeah, wasn't there some HBO show about him? Yeah, there's a ton of that stuff. His work is over a hundred years old now, well into the public domain. Which means that any shitty fiction writer can rip off the gods and monsters that Lovecraft created. So what? Well, they try to make a buck on a movie or a podcast or something. No, I mean, so what? What does this have to do with the Baroness? Greg asked. These fucking people have been reading too many of these stories. And there are so many variations. All the details are watered down or mixed up. Actually, now that I think about it, I'm fairly certain that this great old god Donnie's been rambling on about. Oh yeah, Greg said. What's his name? Kolf? Cuff? Cutlet? Cuddles? Exactly. Lovecraft intentionally made the name unpronounceable. Like humans lack the ability, the comprehension to speak the language. Anyway, he's not even in the Atlantic Ocean. I don't think. Not originally. Yeah, Lovecraft, he wrote about ships and sailors discovering him in the Pacific. Greg was silent for a minute, then asked, So Donnie and his goons are looking in the wrong goddamn body of water? Well, yes, but you think a malevolent water god that's been waiting to destroy the world really exists? It doesn't matter if I do, Greg said. They do. 
Carolyn's lack of response stretched long enough that the couple were able to begin hearing other sounds. Low at first, cloaked by thick walls and floors. It was the fervor of excitement, of commotion and shared spaces. Every time the Steelers scored a touchdown, her little studio apartment back in Pittsburgh shook with the vibrations. But now, there was no crescendo. No ebb following the extra point and cut to commercial break. These voices were continuing to rise. Without discussing or agreeing, Carolyn and Greg rose to their feet, the security of their radio and pistol, respectively, still clutched in their hands. On the balcony, they could see flashes of light. It dotted the mirrored surface of the water below. The commotion was louder, arguing and shouting, screaming, and, horribly, a floor or two above them, pleading. They could hear a woman's voice, frantic, repeating, No, no, don't! Don't! Intertwined with the unintelligible half-snarl of a man's. When Carolyn dared to lean over the railing and look up, she saw the unmistakable shape of a body leaving the side of the ship, and the sound of the woman's words coalescing into a single shriek, a stomach-churning yowl that was cut short when she crashed into the sea. Carolyn let go of Greg's hand and covered her mouth, but she barely had time to gasp before another terrified cry rang out, this one longer than the first, as they had to be falling from the top of the ship. Then there was a third, and a fourth. Carolyn's sickening awe of the scene beyond the boundaries of the Baroness suddenly turned to apprehension. I mean, really, how well did she know this man, whom she'd just met, standing next to her? She was a half a foot shorter than him, and at least a hundred pounds lighter. In bed, she felt how easily he could throw her around, maneuver her body however he'd wanted. Then, she'd liked it, was further turned on by it. But now... Watching and hearing loved ones being thrown overboard, Carolyn knew how easy it would be for Greg to, as Donnie said, make his choice. But then Carolyn felt the weight in her left hand, the heft of a life-taker in her palm. She'd already sunk a screwdriver into the flesh of one man. If this sudden boyfriend, this unexpected lover, if he were to turn on her, could she pull the trigger? Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ghost Modernist. I've been getting a lot more ratings on Apple, which is awesome. But if you don't write any words or anything like that and just leave stars, I don't see the names, so I can't give you any love. If you haven't yet and you've got some free time, just write a few things about the show on Apple Podcasts. Then I can give you a shout-out. The theme music for today's episode of The Ghost Modernist was provided by Atrium Carcheri. Make sure to check out his music on Bandcamp. As always... Remember, there are two types of people in this world, the haunters and the haunted. Which one are you?